Welcome back to Paidea Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I'm joined here once again by my colleagues, uh, Dr. Scott Masson. Hi, Bill. Hi. And today we are going to be talking about probably the most famous Greek tragic play of all time. That is to say, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, depends on, on exactly how you want to refer to it, but it all comes to the same thing. This is a play that has exerted tremendous influence, uh, not just on modern culture, but also on culture in the West uh, for the last uh, 2,000 years. Um, Scott, do you want to take us uh, through a very brief overview of what the plot entails? It's funny you should say that. Uh, uh, even uh, Sigmund Freud made a big deal of it in this, oh, the yes. Oedipus complex, right, which is famously associated with the modern uh, movement of psychology and so forth. But yeah, let's not get sidetrack before we even get on the main track let's talk about the main plot outline there to begin with so basically the background is that oedipus uh whom we will meet and is the central figure in the tragedy was born of a king and a queen uh of thebes and uh, his father's name was Laius. his mother's name was jocasta uh a prediction has been made that their child when he is born, will murder his father and marry his mother. That's the prediction. And they try to, that is, his, that Laius and Jocasta try to circumvent that prophecy. And so yeah. what they do, what they do is they give him to a, a tribesman or a tribesman, a, a shepherd, and they tell him to go and expose the boy to the elements. So they bind his ankles, first of all, which is one of the, um, etymologies of Oedipus's swollen foot. That's right. Uh, so they stick some sort of brooches through his his heels, and so he's limping in in the play. Um, and they put him up on Mount Kitheron, and uh, and instead of doing what he was told, the servant has compassion on the boy and delivers him over to uh, a shepherd from a different house, the house of Polybus, who's the king of Corinth. And and he raises him as his own child and doesn't tell Oedipus that he has been adopted. He thinks that he is, in fact, the um, son of Polybus, the king of Corinth. So he thinks he's a Corinthian. And uh, he finds out, however, and this is where the thing starts to unravel. He finds out at a, uh, I think, a feast, at a feast that he's not his father's son. He's not who he thinks he is. And of course then he's being accused that there's an implicit slight here because of course you're a bastard or you're you know there's something illicit about you and he's so outraged by this he goes to delphi where the famous oracle was to divine from the delphic oracle mm -hmm. where uh he was actually born and ironically it's the delphic oracle that told his original parents that he was going to be born and kill his father mary's mother so he goes to the delphic oracle uh, the Delphic Oracle gives him the exact same prophecy that he just heard. Mm -hmm. Now he's worried that he's going he's gonna to murder his father and marry his mother. But he mistakenly thinks that his father is the guy back in Corinth. And so he, he <clears throat> leaves rather than commit such an atrocious deed. And what he does on the road uh, away from Corinth towards Thebes, he runs across his real father who's in a chariot, his father hits him on the head and he strikes out, he you know, basically responds in rage and then kills the man and then goes down to the city of, of Thebes and finds that a sphinx has been terrorizing uh, that city and um, they don't have a king. And of course they don't have a king because he's killed the king. Right. But uh, as he gets there, uh, the Sphinx is is besieging the city. So the Sphinx is, by the way, a monster with a woman's head. And it's got the body of a, what is it, a winged lion. Yes, correct. Uh, and uh, there's a riddle that the Sphinx tells to every traveler who comes to Thebes. And if he can't answer it, she's going to kill him and eat him. Mm -hmm. And he answers the riddle. And the riddle is this, and it's the riddle that's at the center of the whole tragedy. What has... Four legs in the morning. Four legs in the morning, two days at noon, and three legs at night. And the answer is a man. So a baby, and then a man, and then at the end of his life, walking on, yeah, on three baby. because of a cane. And those are the, 
interestingly connected with Oedipus's own life as it's presented in the tragedy as well, because of course we see him first as a baby and now we meet him as a grown man. But by the end of the play, he's going to be blinded and having to use a crutch to get off stage. So this is a, this is a fascinating story and it really speaks of a profound wisdom about life. And that's why Aristotle sees it as such a, just a terrific play. But so uh, Oedipus solves the riddle of the Sphinx. The Sphinx is banished. He then comes back into the city, finds that there's no king. And so he marries this woman who he doesn't know is his mother and then has children with her. And we, we begin the play with Oedipus faced with a terrible, um, another terrible problem. And this time the problem is that the city is plagued by Apollo a miasma, a terrible stain has come upon Thebes. And, uh, and the people come to Oedipus saying, you have to help us. You, you are the man who solved the riddle of the Sphinx. Now solve this riddle. And they're pleading to him, but the, the city's dying from this terrible plague. And the plague is because of an unspeakable crime. Well, we find out what the unspeakable crime is, but it takes time. The audience all knows the story of Oedipus. That's so it's right. not a new story. No, and maybe this is a point where I should mention that though we don't have any records of it, there, there was a cycle of epic poetry that spoke into this and informed, uh, would have informed the original audience uh, about uh, the context, which is that Laius seems to have had the reputation as being one of the first pederists in Greek culture, cultural history. When you say um, pederast, does that mean he loved children or what yes boys yes, boys in particular yes and this is bound up in a, a cycle called the epigone uh, of which we only have tangential mention uh but he was cursed for this uh this sin by zeus and his curse was to be childless it seems apt enough uh but uh Laius is a clever fellow and somehow we don't know how found a way to circumvent this curse and did have a child uh who is of course oedipus uh, so Zeus in turn curses again and says, fine, you, you can have your child, but it will be a bane upon your existence, not a blessing. Um, and in fact, the, the, the boy is destined to murder that same father. All clear records of this cycle, this, uh, this narrative have been lost. But as I said before, the original audience would have been well aware of this. And so they know the plot. They know the lead up to the plot. They know how it's going to end. Suspense, uh, as Aristotle famously points out, is not part of the attraction of this play or any good tragedy for that matter. Uh, the tragic hero will fall in the end. Oedipus will not get off the hook. Uh, he is doomed right from the beginning of the play. Aristotle talks in relation to the tragedy about uh, two things. He talks about hamartia, mm -hmm. uh, which in the New Testament is a word that's translated for sin. But here in, in classical Greek or in, in the Athenian Greek of this day, doesn't have the moral connotations of sin that we do in the New Testament. So we mustn't see it as a moral transgression. And we could confuse, we could do that because you've just talked about pederasty and the fact that the Greeks find this repugnant and so forth. But that's, that's, not the, that's not the moral transgression here, or, or rather there is no moral transgression. It's, no. It is a, it's a missing of the mark. And it's connected with his hubris, says Aristotle. Now what's his hubris? Hubris often again is moralized by later translators because hubris we associate with pride. But it's not specifically a moral fail. If you look at Oedipus, it's, it doesn't seem to be a moral failing even. Uh, particularly. He, he, he boasts about being able to solve riddles, have prophetic powers. Well, that, that's not boasting. He did do that. He solved the riddle of the phoenix. So that it means more overreaching. So he's missed the mark in the sense that, and the hubris isn't overreaching. He's overreaching in the sense that he's, he's speaking to the realm of, the, of what the gods have already ordained, and he seems to be able to get the bottom of That's the overreaching. So it's an intellectual overreaching. And, and the, I, one final thing I want to say on this, in the Greeks' understanding of the gods, the mm. gods are finite. If Oedipus or mankind in general pushes beyond its limits, it's encroaching on their limits and it's taking something from them and it's a zero-sum game. If, if mankind gains, the gods lose. So the gods are not going to allow this. So for Oedipus to try and circumvent what has been fated 
uh, is for the, the, the gods to be themselves offended. So they're furious at Oedipus. And furthermore, what you just said, uh, at Laius's attempt to circumvent them. Because mm -hmm. you just said that he had this kid. Yes, exactly. He was childless. He's been punished for that. Well, now he's just had a child. He's dodging justice, and justice is absolutely central. It's a central motif to what's going on here, because uh, Oedipus himself is obsessed with justice. Um, you could say that this is one of his uh, one of his uh, most powerful virtues that he has. It's, it's the obsession with doing the right thing. Uh, Which is why we admire him. Yes, and, and this is another important thing to remember here. Oedipus not only hasn't done anything wrong by his own will, uh, moreover, he's actually a genuinely good man who uh, exerts tremendous efforts to avoid doing the sinful thing that's prophesied. Yeah. And it's, uh, this is one of the, the, the brilliant turns by Sophocles, of course, that has been oft celebrated, which is that it's the very attempts to avoid that sinful fate that facilitate that sinful fate. Okay, this is what catches everybody's imagination about this play. But the bottom line is he did do the wicked thing. He did murder his father and sleep with his mother and produce uh, uh, children who were, as it were, a contagion uh, in the midst of uh, the realm of justice in the polis. Well, um, he's, done two, he's done two unspeakable things for the Greeks. Yeah. He's committed parricide, so he's killed his father. That's unspeakable. Yep. And the other thing is he's committed incest, equally unspeakable. And these are not just overstepping of moral and ethical boundaries. You know, we might have spoken about this before. This is the overstepping of a taboo, which is a different kind of a transgression. Yeah. This, this is a violation of something, not just right or wrong or good, good and evil. This is a sacred violation. This is a defilement. And, and the response, the human response to that is very different than it is to those other sorts of violations that we might encounter out there. If somebody jaywalks or somebody steals something, that's obviously you know bad or problematic. But this is a defilement, and we recoil instinctively from it with repugnance. And yeah. it's, it's very much that sense you get at the end of, of this play. People all of a sudden understand the crimes that Oedipus has committed, uh, and, and they recoil in sacred repugnance from the defilement that is Oedipus and his actions. And well, even he himself, does. Yes, it's, as it were, he looks in the mirror and recoils. Like, what have I become? And for this, whether or not he meant to do it, the Greeks demand punishment. No pity. Yes. Um, and it's interesting because pity is what sets the ball rolling at the beginning when the shepherd has pity on the infant child, Oedipus. Yes. And Rather here, than kill him, he gives him to another shepherd. Precisely. And that's what made the great evil happen. And here when we get to the end of the play, shall we have pity on Oedipus? No, he doesn't even have pity on himself. And he gouges his eyes out and he leaves Thebes uh, in profound disgrace. Nowadays, of course, we have, we have very different views of morality uh, when it comes to this kind of thing. And intentionality is, is core to the way we view morals and uh, ethics and, and even taboos to some extent. Well, that's because, of, that's because of the Bible, right? Because the Bible understands intention as part of the, not part of the injustice, because the injustice is the same. If you die, you die. A murder has been committed, but the intent right. of the murderer does matter and is considered in biblical law. It's not considered in Greek law. No. In fact, in fact, if a powerful man is wounded or his his properties have been in some way damaged, it, he can he can mete out justice as he sees fit. So, I mean, your ox kills the king's son. He's not only going to kill the ox, he's going to kill your family if he wishes. Yeah. That's right. True. So there's limitless uh, punishment, as it were. This all ties into, of course, the, the extremely fatalistic view of, if not the Greeks, at least Sophocles and Aristotle. Um, the, the play explores the inescapability of a completely morally determined universe. You're stuck. And if you're going to do, if you're fated to do evil, you will do evil. And you are accountable for the evil you're fated to do, whether or not you wanted to do it, or even if you struggle against it in the case of Oedipus. Uh, whereas, of course, we would never make that distinction nowadays. We have a very different uh, view of these sorts of things. So there's something in, intrinsically nihilistic at the moral level of Oedipus Rex. Is it nihilistic the right word? It's more fatalistic. There, there's a sense of, of a helplessness and inability to change one's lot in life. Remember this, this age, you can become a slave, um, you can become freed from slavery, but to some degree when you are a slave, 
you don't feel like you deserve to be anything other than that. You don't feel like it's, 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 it's a terrible state to be in, but you don't feel it's intrinsic in your nature to be something other than that. Better. No, yeah. it just, it's I a think, terrible thing that could happen to you. I, I think, I, I mean, nihilistic. But Christianity that, I mean, changes that verdict once again. Everyone bears the image of God and therefore ought not to be treated as slaves. That's, that's a later development. And, and it makes us look at the, these issues differently. Yeah, I mean, the Christian worldview, it's initially in the Roman Empire, it's, it's so appealing, particularly to people from that lowered estate, the, the, slaves. Orphans, the slaves, the women, the, you know, the disenfranchised. Uh, early Christians in the empire, they would actually patrol the dung heaps and what have you of, of great estates and what have you looking for children like Oedipus who'd been discarded. Looking for abandoned children who'd been left to die. Exactly. Adopting exactly. them as their own and raising them as their own. Correct. Um, and I think uh, in terms of nihilism, what I mean by nihilistic is that if you're, if you're doomed to some dark fate, especially a fate where you do iniquitous things, there's no getting out of that. You, you, you are doomed. You are destroyed. And it's, it's going to, your, your life and its purpose is going to come to nothing uh, at the end of the day. This maybe ties into another thing that we spoke about in the previous episode uh, to some extent, uh, which is this notion of uh, sporagmos. Um, sporagmos is this incredibly universal rich. How, how do you translate that, by the way? Uh, I'm not sure how I would translate that. I don't have any ancient Greek. Over to you. I don't know either. I don't know the. I don't actually. I don't know that word. But it's a. Is it a? I, der I derived it largely from Rene Girard. That's where I got it from. Okay. I use it uh, consistently, and anthropologists now use it very consistently. So it's 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 a known anthropological phenomenon. Is it something like guilt? It has it has a lot to do with guilt. What it involves usually, uh, we were mentioning in the in the previous episode how. Uh, Tragedy is deeply bound up in the cult of Dionysus, and uh, the word tragedy derives from goat song, and goat sacrifice seems to be at the center of these sorts of things. And what sporagmos is, it's, it's uh, like I said, it's an incredibly universal and enduring ritual whereby the collective sins of a community, in this case the polis, uh, are put on a victim, with shocking regularity this turns out to be a goat, um, and then the goat gets punished for the collective sins of the community, thereby uh, expert. They lay their hands on the goat, and the goat becomes what we call a scapegoat. That's exactly right. And you find and atonement goes on, right? There's a there's Correct. a your sins, those that lay their hands on the goat, their sins are laid on this poor creature who then is sacrificed for their sake rather than them all being destroyed. Precisely, precisely. Now Rene Girard wants to talk about this in terms of. Uh, the Christ figure and the sacrifice on the cross being the ultimate and final um, instance of needful sporagmos. Uh, but the ritual, it, it's been around since time immemorial. And it's, it's still... No, no, you can see it in all cultures. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I watched... It's part uh, of the religious impulse as well, right? Uh, it is. There's something, I don't want to get Jungian or anything, but there is something deeply universal, um, which brings us back to the dynamic... Awareness of sin. An awareness of sin. And, uh, and, and the expurgation and atonement thereof. And so, you so, know, I've, there's, so there's a, a moral a guilt, there's a personal sort of uncleanness, um, there's a, uh, a, and at the same time, it's a situation that you can't eradicate yourself. It's not something that can be done um, by solely personal means. It has to happen to you, and there's a, it's just, it, it's, it's a universal, it really is. Somebody has to pay for the, the iniquities you and your fellows have done. That, that, that justice has to happen. We see that, see that same imperative at the end of Oedipus Rex. Justice needs to be done. However unpleasant it might be, it doesn't matter about our moral quandaries, it needs to be done. So in this case, that sin is taken out of yourself and your fellows, is put on this victim, and the victim pays the necessary price that, that has to be paid. And to this day, I mean, the, the, this ritual uh, is still being put on in the Middle East, in northern India. I've seen videos. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, really pervasive. It's been around forever. You can find uh, iterations of it in the Bible. Um, you've got the goat that is sacrificed and the other one that's driven out uh, into the desert. On Yom Kippur, you know, yes. on the Day of Atonement, right? On the Day of Atonement, exactly. Um, and so... The theorists have wondered whether or not there is some kind of sporagmos dynamic at a very elevated 
uh, elaborate level, symbolically, metaphorically, uh, in the nature of tragedy itself? Is the fall of that great hero somehow the expurgation of our collective sins? Aristotle says the, the whole point of a play like Oedipus Rex is catharsis, but there is a sense in which evil has been expurgated as well and, and, and put out by the fall of Oedipus, both dramatically in the play and perhaps in some other uh, ritualistic sense in the greater Dionysia that we don't fully understand yet. So yeah, Oedipus himself is that scapegoat then. He is uh, the... Yeah, that there seem to be a lot of correlations there. And I don't want to press it too far because I don't and want he, to... And he furthermore is the best of the men. He ends up being a morally admirable character yes. at the beginning of the play. At the beginning of the play, he's like, he, he really is um, like Hercule Poirot. He's, he's the Sherlock Holmes wearing a Greek toga. He's going to get sure. to the bottom of this, right? But he's also a prophetic figure. Yes. Uh, he's presented as like a captain who's going to see the ship home. Remember, these are Athenians. All oh, these are very positive images. He represents everything virtuous about Athens. So he's almost like the, I mean, it's anachronistic, but he's a Renaissance man. He he also um, he's a plowman that's caused the city to blossom like a rose. That another image that's given re really early on, and he's a physician who can heal the plague. So he has all of these features of the academic or rather the Athenian intellectual life, he represents them all. By the end, he has been, all of those positive characteristics are being explicitly uh, spoken against him. He, he has none of those things. He is, you know, in a sense, in the play, he is the best of men. And he it, is the best it, of men. It is precisely the best of men who gets punished for the worst behavior. He is the best man who has done the worst thing. And, um, and he's driven out of the city by the city for the just for the preservation of the city for me i well whatever gerard says here i find this a, it is powerful and it has been perceived almost universally to have this great power precisely because of how well it's written well gerard makes a, a point to this he says uh, you know in some senses we can say that from our modern perspective or at least from a christian perspective uh, oedipus is innocent he not only did well, he didn't mean to do these things. Not only did he not mean to do these things, he strove with all that great virtue of his not to to commit the sins. Well, um, from a Christian perspective, he would still be guilty because he did the things, right? But he would not yes. be. And, he would and, not be exiled. And Gerard springboards off of this to talk about the Christ figure and necessarily the sinlessness of Christ, who is, as it were, the best of us again. And right. he pays for the worst of our behaviors, for the worst of us, if you like. The best. So he did, unlike, unlike Oedipus, he didn't commit the acts. It was, Correct. Right. And, and Gerard says it, it's very important to get that, that feature clear in your head. This is not a man who actually did something wrong, no matter his intention. This, this is a man who did nothing wrong, full stop, never mind the intentions. And this is the innocence. And the innocence of the victim, of the scapegoat, of the spragmatic figure, uh, is absolutely vital to its dynamic in ways we still don't fully understand. So I, I, I tend to read then Oedipus, when I'm teaching this, I see him as a sort of a typological figure. There's a type and an anti-type. He's the fulfillment of a type that yes. we can see in in religious texts and in, in uh, ancient tragedy and so forth. Christ seems to be the fulfillment of everything Oedipus ought to have been, but couldn't be because of his nature. Correct. Um, Anyway, for me, that's really interesting and powerful. Yeah, it's, uh, we also have to remember here, I mean, the two features I, or two virtues I really connect with Oedipus when we're, t I mean, you mentioned a, a great list of things he is and does. Uh, but the things I really zero in on is, is his obsession with the truth. Uh, and he's also a man who's obsessed with justice. He swears at a certain point, I will find the cause of this person and even if it leads back to my house <laughs> yeah and of course this is that great uh, dramatic irony of course we all yeah. know that uh, the man he you condemn uh is yourself when you say yeah. that um and moreover we know that you have a tremendous amount of integrity oedipus and so when it turns out that you are the guilty party you accuse uh and swear to punish you will actually follow through and punish yourself and there's one last thing i'll say on that point which is that you said that he's a prophetic figure. He gets to truths, not just future truths. I mean, we have to, we have, to have the broadest sense here of, of prophecy in the, in the Greek worldview, which is that it's not just future truths, but truths more uh, universally. 
that a prophet gets at, great transcendent truths. Uh, this is why oftentimes the best of poets are, are called, you know, in Latin, they're called vates. Uh, they're vates, the seers, yeah. Yeah. Um, how is a poet a prophet? Well, the poet sees a great transcendent truth that is universal, and it'll be true in the future, it's true in the past, and it's true in the present. Oedipus himself is trying to get at this great transcendent truth, and eventually he does it. And so in a sense, he, he's, he functions as a prophet himself, even though he accesses uh, Delphi and the prophetic resources there. And one of the great uh, features of uh, the best of prophets and poets is that they're blind. Um, yeah, and so he meets the blind prophet Tiresias. Exactly. Whom we met last time in the underworld when, right, as yes. the central figure. Yes. And uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the blind prophet, the uh, blind poet uh, is somebody that Oedipus himself becomes. He gouges out his eyes with, uh, with Jocasta's brooches. And now the, the figure is complete. You, you have access, terrible knowledge. You have access, transcendent knowledge. You've access, taboo knowledge. Uh, and uh, your eyes, your physical eyes are gone. In the same way that Tiresias perhaps did by being an, a hermaphrodite, which is a feature once again of ancient uh, pagan mythology um, and religion furthermore, that the yeah. priest is a hermaphrodite, offers the, uh, occupies this space between maleness and femaleness. There's a, yeah, that, you know what Mary Douglas called um, the, the interstitial space. She said that place in between, uh, especially in terms of human identity, is the place of greatest danger. Um, and, and this is something I think that the ancients were keenly aware of uh, in ways that perhaps we aren't nowadays ourselves. The prophet is a very dangerous figure and lives a very dangerous life in turn. Um, so my contemporary comment on this is I'm just curious about the current obsession with androgyny. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'm, I observe and I'm curious about why there's such a strong emphasis on break, breaching the divide between the male and the female uh, and the emphasis on androgyny and the fact that maleness and femaleness, at least in contemporary literary theory, are said to be constructs and not true identity markers and all that and its connection with these sorts of things. I don't know the answer to it. I just simply observe it. Yeah, um, I don't want to go too far down that road myself. It's just speculative at that point. But Yeah, it's, I mean, we don't have psychological or anthropological insights to that yet. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's an addiction to that kind of transgressiveness that we see in these ancient prophet figures. And we, we live in an age, I suspect, which is rather addicted to transgressive identity, behavior, stuff like this. But that means you're, you're continually having to, to up the dose thereof in order to get the same effect out of it. So is this what has got us here? I don't know. Some scholars think that, uh, and it's suggested in the play, that his name Oedipus comes from swollen foot. There's a play yes. on words there. Because uh, in Greek, the word uh, pus there sounds like from pedos the, or from the foot yes, and the swollen foot. But there's another translation uh, possibility there, which is at least it would sound like it if it was, it, but it's not directly referred to in the play. But oida in Greek means I see or I know. Ah. So its primary meaning is I see. Uh, it's, its secondary meaning is I know. And the the uh, interrogative particle poo is what? So what do I see? What do I know? Oedipus claims that he is able to see things. And in the end, what really do you see, Oedipus? What do you know? And the answer is he doesn't know anything. He doesn't even know who he is. No, he gouges is out his eyes. And he gouges out his, his eyes in the end and becomes like the blind Tiresias who sees <clears throat> from the beginning what's there and doesn't want to go there. And Oedipus, on the other hand, does. And so there, it's, again, it it represents in all of these features of the play a profound meditation on human nature and the human predicament. Yeah, there's it, our, our ability to discern, and in this case, our ability to discern truly is cast into a profound doubt by the end of this play. We have to make decisions based on what is true. Uh, there are times when circumstances just demand it. So Thebes is in the middle of a, a, a miasma, you can't sit around. We have to find out what the answer to this is. But we can only know truths imperfectly, at least in Oedipus's case, until it's too late. Yep. So this is, this is one of the tragic conditions of, of human life. Yes, we need truth, but we know it imperfectly, and we can only ever know it imperfectly, uh, and yet we must act. And so we do. And we see other later playwrights, um, Shakespeare wouldn't have known this, uh, uh, most likely. Uh, but, you know, in Hamlet, 
Hamlet needs to know, and he can never know perfectly, but he needs to act. And so you spend, you know, five acts uh, of the play where basically Hamlet just sort of sits on his hands and, and uh, tries to figure out what to do. Yep. That's the play, uh, essentially, until he finally acts at the end. And when he does, he's wrong. He's horrifically <laughs> wrong. And the dead bodies lay everywhere. Yeah. Um, so also in a different uh, sense, uh, we have Oedipus uh, Rex, where, you know, Yocasta has hung herself and the children are doomed to a life of shame and ignominy. And Oedipus himself is, it becomes this object of horror. Why? Because he had to act, but he couldn't know the truth. Was there more you wanted to say about uh, this aspect of truth with Oedipus? I find this, uh, your observation here about uh, the translation of his name really quite striking. It's plausible and it fits with the, 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 you know, the wisdom of the play that it's really about who is this man who yeah. claims to know who he is and claims to be able to solve mysteries and claims to be able to, uh, rep he represents the pride of Athens really and the mm -hmm. excellence of Athens and yet beneath that, and this is why it's such a profound play, beneath that apparent um, dominance over Greek life, because Athens is the city-state in the ancient world uh, of the day. Um, there's, a, there's a commentary by Sophocles on the soft underbelly of sin, mm -hmm. which needs to be purged from their midst, and they cannot escape that. And the reason why is because it's, Again, it's fated. They are subject, they are human beings subject to the gods themselves, subject to the fates. Yes. And it's a fatalistic universe. And they are, they, as you say, they can't change it. And there's something bleak about the, the tragic worldview of the Greeks. They cannot escape their lot in life any more than uh, Achilles could. And, and Achilles ends well, I guess, in the sense that he ends gloriously. Oedipus ends the exact opposite. In both cases, it's fated. And there's very little scope for a sense of freedom. If there's freedom, it's very limited and curtailed. So again, the sense of, um, you know, when Christians speak about God, that they are to be reverent and not breach, uh, you know, not presume or not to be pr proud. It's, it's not because God is threatened by our presumption. It's, it's because um, we're not acknowledging uh, who he is, but where he's not threatened by us. No, he's not diminished by us, by, by him giving Because he's us not a finite being. His, his being is not limited by our, the expansion of our being. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction because we talk about the Greek gods as being you know, immortal uh, and infinite in some senses, but they're not infinite in every sense. Uh, they are diminished. They, they're, they're territorial. They're intensely territorial. Even with one another. Even with one another. And when you trespass on their territory, there are immediate and savage consequences. They can't ordain history. They don't provide us with all things. They don't know all things. They're not omnipresent. They're, not, they're none of the characteristics of, of the Christian God. They, they yeah. have none of those characteristics. So his existence, his knowledge, his achievements, they're not limits or barriers on my achievements. And, and this is where I find even Christian students need to be alerted to this fact that actually God is not, um, you, you do have genuine freedom in, as a Christian and because God is not uh, offended, threatened, limited by the expression of, of your freedom. On the other hand, there's only true freedom when you acknowledge the truth. Yeah, it's... Um, he is the truth and, and how we relate to him, that's the truth as well. But those are different things than him being threatened. There's no sense of threat. No, and the, the fated nature of one's moral, spiritual life amongst the ancient Greeks uh, informs, I think, to a large extent, why they would move from this great golden age of Greek culture. It's, it's golden in terms of drama, it's golden in terms of philosophy, it's golden in terms of governance, it's golden in, in just any number of terms. Um, and they descend, uh, as it were, into the Hellenistic period. In the Hellenistic period, uh, the audience may know, uh, was a period of infamous for its mere bureaucracy and pedantry. Uh, the Greeks didn't produce anything of lasting value in this period. They commented upon what had gone before, and they commented at uh, uh, oftentimes excruciating length. And uh, increasing pederasty. Yes, increasing pederasty. This is so just that just occurred to me because you were talking about Laius, and, and it occurred to me when we were thinking about Achilles, it's been insinuated, and it was by later commentaries, that the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus was yeah. 
a sexual one, although there's no hint in Homer's text no about the case. That. There's no None evidence. whatsoever. Um, any more than there is with David and Jonathan, but but it's put in there um, in the case of Achilles and Patroclus by later commentators, and they almost they insinuate it because, the, in a sense, they're applying their debased morality. That's what I was going to say. It it says more about the commentator about the, than the thing upon which they comment. So my my sense, and this goes totally countercultural to what uh, I've been reading in academia from the Enlightenment period onward, including the Romantic period and to this day, they have a theory of culture in which things begin in a primal muck with cavemen dragging women around by the hair and being abusive and gradually humanity pulling itself out of that and becoming more and more cultured and educated. That's the narrative. And there's a progressive uh, development. Whereas what I see at least going back to the Iliad and the Odyssey, is there is a high culture that is so high that by the time Achilles and Odysseus come along, they're speaking wistfully of the greatness of the past. And yeah. there's a degeneration from that. And there's a further generation degeneration in the Athenian period and then in the Hellenistic period. So it's, it's not evolution upwards, it's degeneration from that. Yeah, I think models of progressivism, I mean, it, it really came to the forefront, I think, of the Western mind during uh, the Enlightenment period, um, where you had this notion, not only are we, in terms of civilization and technology, are we getting better and better and better, and we look with a degree of contempt upon our ancestors, uh, but we're getting morally, ethically, and spiritually better. Uh, I think this is one of the most outrageous uh, claims about uh, or by progressivism. And uh, I think the ancient mind, on the other hand, was keenly aware that in terms of uh, the virtue, uh, however conceived, of a given culture was something that operated much more in the sense of a sine wave. It, it, it went up, it dropped down, it went up, it dropped down, and these things fluctuated. It became such a common talking point in Roman literature that it actually became sort of a stock uh, motif. They called it the Synectus Itis. Uh, and it's this notion that, you know, the good old days are always better and it becomes sort of a trite cliche in Roman comedy and stuff like this. And doubtless, we've heard this from our fathers and grandfathers as well. So it's kind of a universal human trait. And the Greeks and Romans are keenly aware of this. It's uh, the good old days really sometimes are or were the good old days, depending on the metrics by which you measure these things. Uh, and here we see, you know, a play being produced by the golden age of Greece, but already perhaps the audience or, or Sophocles himself was thinking how we have fallen how we have fallen and in what ways have we fallen? Do we even understand our fall? What kind of truth can we access there in terms of our moral depravity? Where yet shall we sink? And they did sink and they continued to sink and continued to sink. And this is not the judgment of uh, the 20th century. This was the judgment of, you know, near 20 centuries worth of Western thinking on the Greeks. There was once upon a time, they were in a golden age. And by these metrics here, they just collapsed entirely, uh, morally, yeah. spiritually, artistically, uh, pick a cultural value uh, metric uh, that you want to measure them by. They they fell, and, and then so and and then if you look at biblical accounts of that, that's spoken of in historical books like Daniel, and it talks about you know the Greeks coming along and then the Romans coming and the, the replacement of one one empire with another empire's rise and fall in accordance with their moral virtue or or lack thereof. And we see this likewise with the Israelites. Uh, they have a yeah. period of, of, of great righteousness, and then there's a period, the period in which they fall, and disaster ensues, and then uh, along comes some figure um, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they rise up to a position of righteousness again. And so it's, it's one of these universal kind of a patterns that I actually find really quite uh, interesting uh, and, and useful when I'm thinking about matters like this. Yeah, so the, the, this, uh, we talked about the riddle of man in Oedipus, mm -hmm. and it talks, you know, again, the riddle of that's the Sphinx's riddle, which is man is four legs in the morning and two in the afternoon and three in the evening. Um, this is a portrait of lessening strength. So he grows to strength in the midday and then loses it. It's almost an expression of a loss of natural strength and virtue but then it's propped up by technology this technological implement yeah. which is represented by the, the stick right the cane when we um, get to roman uh literature uh i want to talk about this uh in in a fair bit of detail but just i'll just mention it very briefly now the romans had this notion that the universe had a, a meaning and the meaning was uh, ideological and chronological and this meaning was bound up with uh, their inherited notions of the logos 
and uh, I've got a lot to say about the logos, but I'll just mention this now. Their notion was that the meaning, uh, which was uh, historical amongst other things, uh, of the universe, uh, this was like the macro logos. And each uh, individual human being had his own history or her own history, which was kind of a micro logos. And a large part of achieving virtue in life entailed aligning in its most significant aspects your micro logos with the macro logos. So here with Oedipus, we see a, a, a picture of a man who was an incredibly weak, doomed state rise up, as it were, into maturity, uh, a position of strength and respect. Uh, and then he undergoes a terrible fall, and you have that broken figure with the three, the three legs at the end of the day. And this in turn lines up with what Aristotle is saying about the universality of these great heroes. In, in a sense, is Oedipus not like us all in this fall? How am I like Oedipus? Obviously, I'm not going to kill my dad and sleep with my mom. But nevertheless, so, you know, how, how does my micro-logos align with this macro-logos or the micro-logos of Oedipus Rex? Well, that's, fasc that's fascinating because in, in the subsequent play, Antigone, mm. there's a so-called ode to man. And it speaks of man as a Danon, a, a terror and a wonder and it talks about the power uh he has to tame the earth to domesticate it to circumvent the globe you know by means of of ships or whatever um and even through technology to be like gods and and uh the commentary from sophocles is and it, i'm not sure this is a very good translation or not it says overcoming always man loses his way and comes to nothing uh, so that there's a sense of a loss of uh, the uh, limitations of our humanity through technology. We become like the gods and thereby bring their curse upon us. And that seems to be, obviously, he's not commenting, as we said earlier, he's not making a moral commentary. He's almost making an objective observation yes. about what people do. They lose their bearings the more sophisticated they become, the less they remember that they are only flesh they're only mortals and they bring themselves down it's the same story as the story of the tower of babel no, i was just thinking of that there's a there's a sense in which as you rise you lose your your orientation especially your moral spiritual and, uh, and ethical orientation and you forget some of the fundamental flaws of being human and in doing so you set yourself up even as you rise to fall you must go up to come down did, it just occurred to me, did you know that this is another anecdote, but I think it's accurate that the Roman emperors, uh, when they were adamantly opposed to the idea of, of, a, of a king or a tyrant, which That's they right. got in the emperor. Um, but even when they did that, they were aware of the danger to themselves. And they used to have a retinue behind them that would be crying out, forget not that you're a man. I've not heard that. Behind the, behind the emperor, there'd be retinue crying out, who because the, the the emperors claimed to be gods and were right. divinized and yet there would be a chorus saying forget not that you're a man because of Very the interesting probably because of the consequences for the uh, the republic of a man who forgot his humanity um the, the romans were very much uh practical yeah, they're, 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 they're pragmatic um and also uh, we're gonna have to talk about this at great length um they have a very clear, very articulate, very elaborate notion of piety, the sacred yes. that that entails, especially when you're in leadership positions. Um, their, their thinking was much more developed on this uh, yet than the Greeks. The Greeks thought a lot about this, but not the ways in which the Romans did. But that's uh, perhaps a different conversation. I'd, li I'd like to uh, uh, end by just talking very briefly about uh, the attraction of tragedy. Why are we attracted? To these, why do we feel that these are more aesthetically, not just uh, ethically, but aesthetically important tales than "quote unquote" mere comedy? Hmm. Uh, what is it about the sad tale that that draws us in, or the sad song that draws us in? Why we find it good to contemplate sadness and tra and the tragic? And I don't have any kind of clever responses on this. It's just a question that's always uh, haunted me. We somehow feel, uh, along with Aristotle, or many of us feel, along with Aristotle that these tragic tales are, are the most important forms of aesthetic experience we can get, especially around drama. Mm. Why is that? What pulls us in? Why is it good to be sad? Perhaps something could be said on this front about, you know, the disjunction between comedy and tragedy. Because and, comedy involves things going wrong as well. 
but they go hilariously wrong in comedy and they go tragically wrong in tragedy. And how do we draw the line between um, laughing at uh, the pratfalls of the comedian to the downfall of you know, an Oedipus or an Othello or somebody like this? How do we construct that line? And does that line shift between comedy and tragedy? Uh, again, I don't have any clever answers uh, on these fronts, but it's, it's something that continuously occurs to me uh, as I watch plays like this. I think people like to see themselves as superior to what they are and uh, to imagine that given their druthers, given their the power which they, if they had, they would be able to transcend their condition. They seem to think that they would do differently. That if so, if I were in charge, uh, so a cautionary tale sort of impulse to some degree, there's an awareness, there's a deep awareness. People say to themselves, If I were in this position, I would do better, mm. uh, almost invariably. Like, you, there's a, a sense of you, you're judging your neighbor, you're seeing the log in his eye and the speck in your own, you're, you're seeing his the problems with his way of looking at the world, but you don't really see the problems with yours a tragedy in a sense gives you a man who would be like the sort of man you would like to be like an Oedipus. He's so exemplary. Mm -hmm. And at, and it, and it brings into relief the thing that you don't see or don't tend to look at in yourself, which is your sinful condition. I think it brings it in bold relief. And there's a, when it does that, I think people recognize and admit, yeah, you know what? I think that's, that's a truth that I did not want, but it's a truth that simply explains what Jordan Peterson now talks about, the tragedy of human existence, that suffering comes with being a human being and that that is a part of life. And, and, it's, and, and meaning comes with an awareness of the importance and meaning of suffering. Yeah. I mean, in, in a sense, you're invited, certainly explicitly by Aristotle, to recognize, as it were, aspects of yourself and therefore sinful aspects of yourself in great representative tragic heroes. Uh, and insofar as you recognize the sin in yourself, however conceived, uh, you're in a position to, you know, Aristotle says, well, we need to expurgate. That's what the function of tragedy is. But remember, you know, the, the, these dynamics of sporagmos are doing the same thing. It all ties into a very sort of coherent interlinking ritualistic impulse that defies mere cheap summarizing it's, it's hard to put our finger on exactly what it's doing but it has something to do with sin expurgation recognition uh, it's insofar as we recognize it as a universal uh, sort of a thing it, it's also something which builds community we have to remember that this is at the core of the policy at the core of the community so community is absolutely central to this as well tragic heroes don't usually the great tragic heroes don't exist in a vacuum. They Absolutely not. No, and that's that's no, no. core. It's easy to forget in in our modern age where we emphasize independence and independent thinking so much and independent freedom. This is not. Yeah, you don't you don't you you don't get that in Shakespeare. Shakespeare still has the importance of the communal. Yes. Um, and and the tragic figures is a figure like a king or so forth, but in modern conceptions of it, I agree it it loses all of the communal aspect, which is so essential to a real tragic experience as it is conveyed in in religion and also in these great works of literature maybe this um, is a part of the explanation behind the diminishment or even the disappearance of, of tragedy and our ability to write and appreciate tragedy in the modern era since the time of the romantics we have been celebrating our freedom from the community. Our, oh our gosh, yeah. Don't get, me, you don't get me going on the romantics, Bill. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that way lies madness. Yeah, well, at that point, then it becomes the, uh, it becomes the, the autonomous individual, the, the, literally the person out on a heath, the beggar, the orphan, the wanderer, but somebody without any connections. I remember an orphan has no parents, has no community, literally thrown upon himself. In the Greek terms, he would be an idiot. He, he thinks only of himself. He's isolated from all communal concerns or interests, and that is no longer tragic. It's in the in the Greek sense. It is tragic in the Germanic romantic sense. The yeah, tragedy of there, or something like this. Yeah, yeah. There's a sort of a tragic experience, but it's not the same sense. It's now an individualistic one, and it is very, very different. It it must not be conflated or mistaken with its forebears it and and i do think we are still laboring with that and yeah. to some degree i think modern psychology arises out of that sense of individualism as well 
it's right around that period, maybe a little bit before that period, all of a sudden we are no longer capable of writing epic anymore. Milton's basically the last, and uh, we fall back on the mere mock epic during the Enlightenment. Uh, and like well, the romantics write epics, but they're really odd versions of epics. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not anything that really calls to people the way the previous epics had called to everybody and anyone and, and moved people at that deep, profound level. No, there's no, there's no community. There's nobody gathering around it. There's no profound wisdom. I mean, I teach a course on the romantic epic. You're, you're a literary scholar of some distinction. Have you ever read romantic epics? I bet you haven't. I have not. No, and, and, that, and that's because they are no longer, uh, even in the greatest poets of the romantic period, and the greatest poets do write these epics, they are not uh, acknowledged or celebrated as such. They become pale shadows of what went yeah. before. Are, are, as great are, are, as they are, because I actually think they're quite fascinating and profound things. I mean, Keats, Shelley, Byron, Wordsworth, uh, the, the, um, Blake, they all write epics. And interesting. they're interesting by comparison, but they don't stand on their own. No, and I think to some extent our interest in them nowadays is largely historical. I mean, how many, how many people, what was it that Keats wrote? Was it Hyperion or? Hyperion, two Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I have read one. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of skill being deployed there. But how many people sit down? and actually read that for pure pleasure anymore. I'm not sure I would do that. I, I can spend my literary time, my reading time, in other more productive ways. Yeah. We, we see the di disappearance of epic, and we see the disappearance of true tragedy as well in the modern period. And so one of the pressing questions on us is why? Just quite simply, why? And I don't intend to answer that here. Maybe we'll answer that further on down the road in these podcasts. Uh, but it is an overwhelming question. It's one of the great questions of our age. Why have these things disappeared? Why are we no longer capable of not only writing these things, but appreciating these things and being powerfully moved by these things anymore? Well, uh, I think people still are moved by them, um, as is evident if they ever are exposed to them. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this is to hope to bring people to an awareness of it. But um, I think a great delusion has come over people that education has its own agenda and it's no longer to educate it's no longer to bring people into a culture of community that transcends not only their own age but past ages and brings them into a the great conversation That's right it tries to move them away from that into a very different type of experience of learning and it's not learning even in my view it, it is so sort of propaganda exercise it's it's ideology um, yep. merely fashionable ideology uh, moreover if you look at the last 20 years of, of the development of modern curriculums at uh, at the university and college level and high school level even so these things these these great things about which people are worked up into a frenzy are things which will no longer be pressing issues in 10 15 years um, well, now we're sound like grumpy old men so maybe we should end it off there we're ending with our own synectus itis rant. So there we are. <laughs> okay, Scott, uh, as always, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, great stuff. Mm -hmm.